right. Well, good afternoon. Good evening, everybody. How's everybody feeling tonight? Feeling good? Glad to be here. Well, I'm excited. I'm very grateful that I get a chance to preach to you guys because I don't know if you did the math yet, but we are we are at the beginning of the Passion Week starting this weekend. And uh, and the Passion Week is is the week that 2000 years ago that Jesus, the last few days on, on earth as he was getting ready to go to the crucifixion. And, uh, and in the next week, we're going to have an incredible Easter service. First of all, let's give it up for the worship team today. I know we had, we, we had some, some instrumentalists go down with, with diseases and all kinds of stuff. So, um, but next week, we're going, to be, we're going to be worshiping together at Cal State. We're going to be in a morning service, which is so off of our normal. But it feels like we've been done, we've done a couple park services, so we're getting a little used to it this year. But, um, that's gonna be an awesome time to celebrate the resurrection, right? New life. The fact that because of, of the resurrection, that we get the chance to, ha- to have a different kind of experience and different kind of life with Jesus. But the reality is, you can't have a resurrection without the crucifixion. And there's a part of that that is exciting as, as, uh, as Easter is, it can kind of get lost in the bunnies and the colors and the chocolate and all the things that go on there, that in order for there to be a resurrection, we have to be able to acknowledge the fact that Jesus' death is what made all that possible. The resurrection is the most important moment in mankind's history. But it wouldn't have been possible without the second most important moment, his death and his, resur- and his crucifixion. In John 12, 24, it says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Now, God knew this from the beginning, that in order for new life to be possible, sacrifice, death had to be first. And, and today we're going to do something a little bit different for our service. My goal, my prayer is that I want to turn our attention 100% to the cross. For us to really just sit at the feet of Jesus and what he went through 2,000 years ago so that we could have that hope of new life. And the title of our, of our lesson here today is, is called The Passion. I know many of us here saw the movie that came out years ago. But when we say the passion, that word passion, what it means is suffering. That when it says the, the, the passion of the Christ, it means the suffering of Jesus. And the truth is, as people, we do not like suffering. Pain is not like in our vocabulary. We avoid pain at all costs. With painkillers, with mind-numbing social media and video games and all kinds of things, we want to avoid pain as much as humanly possible. Um, And I think without realizing it, we can kind of do that in Christianity when it comes to the cross. We, We like the benefit of the crucifixion. We like the resurrection, the new life that comes with the crucifixion. But to really consider the suffering and the pain of Jesus, that's the part we don't want to think about. And honestly, this, this was a tough sermon to put together this week. It was hard for me because I think I, I didn't realize how much I don't really want to think about this on a regular basis. That even taking communion every week together, that it's not necessarily like I go, man, Jesus suffered for me. But I think especially this time of year, 
to even really appreciate what we're going to celebrate next week at Easter. We have to be willing to engage with Jesus at the cross. To let ourselves feel the uncomfortableness, uh, the uncomfortability of the pain that he went through. And what we're going to do today is, is I'm going to kind of set up the, the need of the crucifixion. And then we're, and really I'm just going to tell you guys, I know you don't get to hear this at church very often, but you get to put your Bibles down. Because I'm going to just show you some quick scriptures leading up to it. And then what we're going to do is I'm going to narrate the story of the cross. And, we're, and my goal is just for you just to just imagine connecting and walking with Jesus through his crucifixion. And I'm going to say a word of prayer here. Oh, real quick. If there's anybody in here that is part of Kingdom Kids Rotation A, you're supposed to go to the fellowship hall. So, sorry, I messed that up. Uh, let's say a word of prayer. Father, I do just want to thank you so much for the chance that we get right now to, uh, to really sit at the feet of Jesus. God, I know that, that, that I even feel a certain level of anxiety and, and, and just uh, hesitation about getting into this because I know that there's an uncomfortability. There's, there's the, the idea of talking about the pain that Jesus went through for us is not a fun topic. But God, I, I know that that is what allowed us to be saved and to be changed here today. And so I really pray that you'll really move me out of the way and help us to really just clear the distractions, the fluff, and, and to really be engaged with you and to be engaged with Jesus right now. I love you so much in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The very beginning, back in Genesis, we know God created us, says that God created us in his image. God created us in, in, to, to be a representation of who he is. And at the end of his creation, it says, in, says when it was all done, that he looked at us. He looked at you and me and he said, you know what? This is really good. You and I were made as a good representation of God. That the intention from the very beginning was for us to walk in this incredible communion with our, in our representation of God. And, actually, and in, uh, when it actually gets to the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis... There's this incredible representation here, too. It says that Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, I wanted to hit on this for a second because their, their relationship with God was so special, so intimate, so personal, so real, that they got to enjoy God as we were intended to enjoy him. I want you to picture for yourself in your mind what it would be like to actually live a life completely and 100% without shame. I don't want to get too much into the naked side of things. That's not really the point. But the comfortability that they even felt in that was because they had nothing to feel shame with in their relationship with God. That God designed you and, I, you and I to be in this perfect communion with Him. And they got to just enjoy, they got to walk with Him in the garden, just be with Him, eat all these different things. Matter of fact, in the, as part of His instruction to Adam and Eve, he told him, he says, look, you guys are actually free. You're free to enjoy everything about my relationship with you, everything about this garden. Eat whatever you want. You get to hang out with the animals. You get to name them. Whatever you call them, that's their name. Kind of a cool thing. A lot of pressure, but still, it's a cool thing. Their relationship was full of freedom. And not the way that we tend to think about it. But he did warn them. He said, look, there is one thing, though. One thing. If you eat from this tree, you're going to invite something into your life 
that I can't take away. You have perfect freedom to enjoy whatever you want except this one thing. And if you do this one thing, it says when you eat from it, you're going to die. You're going to invite death into your life. Something you've never experienced, never had to worry about, never had to think about. And if you consider Adam and Eve's relationship with God, I mean, they were literally given everything. Everything. Imagine that. That 99.99999% of your life was good, except for this one thing that you couldn't do. And that was the one thing that Satan tricked them into thinking, God's keeping from you. Which at the core of, of our story, when it comes to our sin and the things that we commit, all of us bought the same lie that they did. God is keeping something from you. If you, if you drink this, if you, if you go sleep with this person, if you buy this thing, if you do these different things, you're going to get something that God didn't want you to have because it's so awesome. When in actuality, God is saying, I'm not keeping anything from you except death. You have perfect freedom with me. The only thing you stand to lose is your life. And yet they bought the lie. And because they bought the lie, when he talked to them about it later on, he says, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit, from the, the fruit from the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat it. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat fruit from it, food from it all the days of your life. This perfect, harmonious, shameless relationship was gone. And because of sin, Adam and Eve invited curses and pain into their life. And the truth is, that's what sin does. In Proverbs chapter 10, it says, The wages of the righteous is life, but the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. This is a side of sin that we don't tend to necessarily think about or we don't really want to acknowledge. If you're like me, I tend to judge my sinful actions based on the weight of their consequences and kind of, well, you know, I just got a little angry at my wife and lost my temper. You know, or, you know, I I swore inside my head. Or, you know, I... I looked at that woman in a way I probably shouldn't have, but at least I didn't do or touch her or did anything there. All the while not realizing that at the core of it, any sin that we commit, what it has earned, what it gives us is death. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how many times you did it. The weight of our sin, the choices of our sin, has earned and invited death into our lives. And God, as he's watching his his children, not just with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, and for generations, watch them make choices. The damage that sin caused had a very real effect on him. Leading even up to the story of Noah, when it says that God looked at the sin of mankind, when he saw the state of where they were at, the words that that the Bible throws at us, it says that the Lord regretted that he made man on earth, and he was deeply grieved. Now, for you parents, I want you to imagine for a second looking at your children full of regret. Looking at the state of where your kids are at and just going, man, I regret that I ever even had you. That is the weight of sin to God. And this is not something, again, that we like to think about. We tend to just kind of think, oops. But not all the while not recognizing that our sin can have this kind of an effect on our Heavenly Father. 
But God didn't want us just to suffer in our sins and to leave us separated from Him. In Leviticus, with Moses, it says, he sets up a way to try to restore this broken relationship. He said, look, your sin has caused so much damage, it's caused so much death, but I don't want us to be separate. I want us to be able to have a relationship again. But the cost of it, in Leviticus 17, it says, I've given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. Saying this is the reality. The cost of your sin, the cost of your sin is death. That means in order for you to be right with me, in order for our relationship to be restored, something has to die. Something has to pay for the blood that you've caused. And this is a great temporary fix. Because the reality is, as people, we don't just stop sinning. You didn't just wake up one day and flip a switch and then all your sin just ceased to go forward. And so these sacrifices just kept having to happen over and over again. And God knew this, knowing that this, that this couldn't fix the overall problem. These animals were an incomplete sacrifice. Because these animals were pure in their nature. They had no ability to choose righteousness or sin. Just in their existence, they were clean and good. In Hebrews chapter 2, the Hebrew writer tells us, he says, therefore it was necessary for him, it's Jesus, to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be merciful and faith, be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. God saw the state of mankind where they were at and said, there's only one way to fix this. There's only one way to deal with the sin of these people. I'm going to have to send my son, my child, down to this earth who has the ability to choose righteousness or sin. And if he chooses righteousness, if he lives the way that he is supposed to live, then he can be an offering for us. But there's a part of this that we got to own here, guys. Anybody that has been around Jesus or church to any extent can say that Jesus died, on this, died for our sins. And there's an easy element to this in the corporate way to feel, okay, yeah, Jesus died for us. But the reality is this is an extremely personal thing. Before Jesus ever went to the cross, God predicted or God prophesied in Isaiah what was going to happen. And it says here, yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Somebody shared with me years ago the struggle of, of Okay, why, why was it that the sacrifice for our sins was going to be such a hard thing? I don't know if you noticed this, but the words that are used there, these are rough, this is some rough language. Punishment, pierced, crushed, beaten, whipped. Would you wish that on any person? 
And yet, God was saying, 500 years before Jesus even came to this earth, this is what my, my son, this is what my, my Messiah is going to have to endure. And he would share with me, okay, why, why was it that God would, would say that this is, what, this is what the Messiah was going to have to endure? Not just death, not a beheading, not something that we would quick flash our fingers and it's over. Because this is what our sins deserved. He was pierced for our sin and our rebellion. Crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. God is trying to help us to connect that this is not just about everybody on earth and our corporate sins and the sins of the church. This is about you standing before God. Your sin deserved to be beaten, crushed, whipped, and all those different things for the chance of healing. The very next verse says, All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. That yes, all of us are guilty together. God looks at mankind and says, Yes, all of you are guilty. But he says, Each of you. Every single one of us has made a decision on our own to wander away from God. To wander away from what we were created for. To wander from the garden And by the lie of sin. But because of his love, he was willing to send Jesus to stand in our way. And what I want us to do here is I'm going to go through and share the story of the crucifixion together. I'm not going to read it verse by verse. I'm just going to tell you the story. And the goal of this is for us just to take some time to connect personally. So if you want to close your eyes and just, just think about it, you know, sometimes it even helps me to consider, man, if, if this was me, if this was my crucifixion story, if this is God saying you're going to experience all the punishment that you deserve, at what point would this, would I have wanted to give up? I want to say another word of prayer here as we go into this. Father, I just want to thank you again that we get the chance to sit at the feet of Jesus at the cross. I pray that you will really speak through me right now, and I pray that you will soften our hearts and help us to be attentive to, uh, to the reality of what we deserve, but also what Jesus was willing to do for us. We love you so much. In your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our passion story starts with Jesus in the garden. Praying to his Father, trying to prepare his heart and his mind for what was about to come. And as he's there, he was, he was in so much anguish and so much anxiety, he invited his best friends to come with him because he said, hey, I need you guys with me. I need you to pray with me for what's coming. And Jesus begins to pray for hours and hours. Father, if there's any way, if there's any possible way that the suffering that's coming could be taken away, if there's any other way for them to be saved, if there's any other way for their sins to be forgiven, please take this from me. Don't allow me to go through this. But the amazing part of that prayer is he said, but not my will. Your will be done. And for hours on end, he's praying this over and over again. And even going to go visit, he would go back to his disciples 
And in that moment, with his, his most pressured, intense, heartbreaking moment of his life, asking his disciples to pray with him, they're sleeping. So he's abandoned, in a sense, to be by himself, wrestling through the most difficult moment of his life. This was such a stressful and, and agonizing process that as he's, as he's praying, he's sweating. He's sweating so intensely that it says that the capillaries in his skin burst and he starts sweating drops of blood. Things that only happen mostly to people that are aware that they're about to die. And for hours again, he's begging, God, if there's any way that I can avoid this suffering, if there's any way for them to be saved outside of this, please make it possible. Until finally, after hours, he's able to rise up, ready to face what's coming. And as he looks in the distance, there's Judas, one of his 12 disciples, one of the men that was with him almost every single day for three years, witnessed the miracles, heard all of his teachings, walking up to him with armed guards to arrest him. And it says that the signal that he sent to the guards that it was going to be Jesus was that he was going to go up to give him a kiss. The Luke account says that, that when Judas comes up to kiss him, Jesus looks at him and says, you would betray me with a kiss? You'd betray me with an act of love, with an act of friendship? Imagine if you were Jesus, what would be going through your heart and your mind to know the suffering that's coming, but then to have to experience that kind of betrayal? And then the disciples aren't getting it. They're in a frenzy. Peter steps out, cuts off a servant's ear to try to stop what's happening because he doesn't understand that without this, he can't be saved. And Jesus stops his disciples and says, look, I can stop this anytime I want to. But how then will God's will be fulfilled? How then will you make it? How then will the Desert Saves Church of Christ and the people sitting in this room make it to God? And at that moment, his 11 closest friends desert him and flee. The men who told him, they'll die with him. They'll go through anything that Jesus goes through. They leave him to be alone with his captors. But the passion wasn't done. And he goes and he stands before the Jerusalem High Council, the Sanhedrin. Men that were so bitter, so jealous, so disrupted by what Jesus was doing. He changed everything about the way that they lived their lives and they hated it. They were looking for a reason to kill him. They start bringing person after person to come and accuse him of things. Probably some of the same people that were in Jerusalem ten days, late, ten days earlier, waving palm fronds, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. Some of the same people that Jesus was preaching to, who was trying to heal, was trying to love, they're now standing before him one by one, coming up to accuse him of something to try to get him killed. How would you feel if you were Jesus? Knowing that nothing that was said was true. And then finally Caiaphas says, Enough! I'm tired of all these liars. Are you the Messiah or not? And that's the moment that Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. 
And then what happened from there was that they turned this statement, this thing that should have been a celebration, it should have been all the Jews falling on their knees saying, praise be to God, our Messiah is here. He's here. He's going to save us. To now become an object of wrath. As they spit on him. Mock him. Slap him. Punch him. Prophesy to us, Christ. Who hits you? But the passion wasn't done yet. As Jesus is being led away to Pilate, he looks across the courtyard, not knowing that at the same time, his best friend, Peter, the same man that walked on water, the same man that said that, that they witnessed Moses and Elijah on the Transfiguration Mountain, is denying that he even knows that Jesus is real. Denying that he ever knew him. And the Luke account it says that Jesus looks across the courtyard in his third denial and makes eye contact with him. Here's my guy. Here's the one that I'm supposed to be handing the keys to the church over to, saying that he doesn't ever know me. And he's led away to Pilate. Because the death that the Jews wanted for him was a death that they couldn't provide. By law, they couldn't hang someone from a tree. They couldn't brutalize Jesus the way that they wanted him to be killed. So they were taking him to the Romans so that they would do it for him. So they lead him away to Pilate. And he's standing before this governor. A man who has all the power to be able to set him free in that moment. Every ability to say, no, this can't happen. This is also a man that, that was leading an area, of the, uh, an area of the country that was known for riots, that was known for trouble. And if you were a Roman soldier or a Roman governor leading an area that was unruly and you couldn't get it under control, that meant they would just kill you and put somebody else in, their, in your place. And now this, this gang of, of Jews is coming up about this man saying they want to kill him. So he pulls him aside to interview him. To, to wonder why they're so hungry for his death. And he realizes, this man's innocent. He's not guilty of anything. But I've got a mob out there telling me that they want him killed. So cleverly, Pilate comes up with a plan. Every year at Passover, I release a prisoner. So I'll pick a prisoner that surely they won't want. This man Barabbas, this, this murderer, this this guy that was a rioter, this guy that nobody would want back in their society, surely there's no way they'll choose Barabbas over Jesus. And then it's not my responsibility. But to his amazement, they start shouting, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And now he's got a problem because he has to decide, what do I do with this man that I know is innocent? And all of a sudden, the chants from the crowd, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He says, no, this man is not, worth, is not guilty enough to be crucified. I'll send him off to be beaten, and that'll be enough. And one of the most quickly overlooked sentences of the Bible, Jesus was sent to be flogged and scourged, is mentioned. 
In Isaiah 52, at the end of that chapter, it says that the Messiah was going to be marred beyond human likeness. He would be so beaten, so disfigured, so completely ripped apart physically that we wouldn't recognize that he was human anymore. And that was that moment. As Jesus is led to the praetorium, he's chained up to be flogged, where they take reeds about as thick as, as, a, as a thumb or even, or even bigger. And the plan was, the Romans had come up with this scheme called 40 lashes minus one, and some people think it was to, to respect the Jews for some of their customs. Some people think that it just the Romans were so, so adept at torture that they realized that after 40 lashes, most people die. So we'll lash him one less than probable death. And Jesus is beaten over and over again on his back, on his ribs, on his shoulders, on his neck. So finally the soldiers decide, you know what, instead of, instead of rods, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna whip him instead. And they grab this thing called a cat of nine tails, a whip with nine leather straps on it. And at the end of each leather strap would either be rocks or broken glass or nails or something sharp and jagged. As they continue to lash him across his body, and this time strips of flesh are just being thrown around the praetorium. Skin, muscle, tendon. Jesus is literally being ripped apart. And each lash, each and every time he was hit, was for something that we did. And there he is. A bloody mess. They take him away to get him ready to go see Pilate, but the the passion's not done yet. And Jesus' body is now in shock. He's trying desperately, the, 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 the flesh is just trying to heal itself in any way it can and close up these open wounds. And so the serum and the blood starts to dry around his robe and starts, starts sticking his robe to his open wounds. And then the soldiers come in and they're not done yet. So they rip his robe off of him like a giant open body band-aid reopening all the wounds that are desperately trying to close. They throw a robe on him to mock him. It says they twisted together a crown of thorns. And these aren't rose thorns. These thorns could be anywhere from three to six inches. And they don't place it onto his head to mock him. It says they use a staff to drive it, to beat it into his head. Years ago, I heard a pain specialist, talking about the story of the crucifixion. And he elaborated on the crown of thorns and he said, the crown of thorns alone, if you forget anything else that Jesus went through, the crown of thorns alone, because of the length of these thorns, because of the the blood vessels around the forehead and the nerves that are up in the head there, the crown of thorns alone would have been enough pain to make a man go insane. Be so brutal, so painful that the body just flips into shock and goes nuts because it can't handle what it's experiencing. And all the while, these men are mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! But the passion wasn't done yet. And they lead him back to Pilate, barely a man. Barely able to stand on his own feet. Hasn't slept, hasn't eaten. 
Skin is in ribbons. And I'm sure Pilate looked at him and thought, surely this is enough. Surely this is going to satisfy the crowd. But again, to his amazement, he hears, hears, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Getting louder and louder in the crowd and in fear of a riot, he makes a decision. And he has a symbolic gesture brought out of a bowl of water as he washes his hands in front of the crowd. Telling the crowd and telling himself, I wash my hands of this decision. This is on you. You can imagine what might be going through Jesus' mind as he's watching this man who had his life in his hands with one decision could have called it all off. Saying, this isn't my responsibility. A position that we all take at different times of our lives when we're not ready to take ownership of the cross. When we try to tell ourselves, this isn't my fault. My sin wasn't bad enough for this. I never asked Jesus to go through this for me. And he washes his hands. And sends him off to be killed. The passion wasn't done. Because crucifixion was not just a death. It was a spectacle. It was something the Romans had perfected. Because they didn't just want to kill people with it. They didn't want them just to suffer as they died. They wanted everybody in the towns and the cities to know. If you disobey the Romans, this will happen to you too. And so the criminals are made to carry the object of their death. A tree, a large piece of wood, depending on what was around. And they have to carry it through the city, miles on foot, as people watch them get led up to a hilltop for their death. And as he starts walking, Jesus is so exhausted. He's, he, hasn't, he doesn't have anything left inside of him. He collapses under the weight. So they grab a man named Simon of Cyrene and say, you've got to help him. You've got to help him carry his cross to get him to the top of the hill. And all the while, you can imagine people are still mocking him. Hail, King of the Jews, spitting on him, reaching out to him to hit him more and more. Continuing the shame. This is our Messiah being led to his death. And then he gets to the top of Golgotha. The place of the skull, where he's laid out on a piece of wood, stretched out in his arms with three nails, one in each wrist, with his feet stacked on top of each other, one nail going through both feet, as they raise him up to die on his cross. And crucifixion is an ugly death. It's slow, it's long. It's not one where you'd normally die from from blood loss or from starvation or anything like that. You die because it's so hard for you to take a breath with your arms stretched out like this that you have to press on the nails in your hands and feet to be able to get a breath. So you're forced to press on the pain of the nails over and over and over again until finally the pain sets in and you suffocate. On your own body. 
And the passion wasn't done yet. Because as he's hanging on the cross waiting to die, he looks down from his cross. The Romans that are only a few feet away from him, completely oblivious to the significance of what's happening. They're playing a game for his clothes. To try to see who gets to take home the clothes of the dead man. And the Jews are still coming up to this, to this hilltop, different times, calling out, look, if you're really the Messiah, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. And you can imagine the pain that Jesus felt, the temptation to show them how powerful he was. The pain that he felt knowing who these people were and what he was doing for them. And then not to mention the robbers, the guilty men on his side that are dying a death that they deserved are heaping insults on him as well. And in that moment, instead of anger, instead of wrath, instead of curses, instead of looking down at these people who don't understand that it's their sin that he's dying for, he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know that I'm here for them. This is a prayer that haunts me. Because I imagine Jesus looking down at each one of us in our sin. In our darkest moments. The things that we regretted the most in our lives. The things maybe you've never told anybody. That sin that, that, that haunts you every day. That Jesus looked down from his cross at that moment and said, Jake, you don't know what you're doing. Father, please forgive him. But the passion wasn't done yet. The heaviest, most painful part was still to come. The part that I believe when he was in the garden praying, when he was sweating drops of blood, I don't believe that he was sweating thinking about the pain of being beaten. Although he might have. I don't think he was bleeding in prayer because of the abandonment that he was going to feel from his disciples, although he might have. I think he was bleeding because he knew what was going to come. Something that was more painful than anything physically that he, that he was going to experience. And towards Jesus' final moments of life, it says that the darkness starts to come over the land and in the ninth hour, Jesus cries out the psalm from Psalm 22, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This wasn't dramatic. This wasn't poetic. This was a son crying out to his father because his father wasn't there anymore. Because Jesus knew in order to carry the weight of our sins, there was something more damaging, more painful than, than getting whipped, more painful than being crushed, than being pierced. It was being separated from his father. 
to carry the weight of your sin, Jesus had to be willing to endure something he had never experienced before the beginning of time. Because from the very beginning, Jesus and God were one. They created the universe together. They were one flesh. But God can't, he's so pure, he's so holy, he can't have anything to do with sin. And so for Jesus to become a sacrificial lamb, he had to be willing to face being separated from God. And that was more painful than anything. And he cries out in agony, God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, he felt alone. In the final moments after that, Jesus was probably taking shallow, shocked breaths. So finally, I imagine he looked up to heaven and said, God, it is finished. As he gave up his spirit. He said after that, the earth experienced God's visceral emotion. God was so heartbroken, so emotional watching his son die for us. It says that the, the earth shook, rocks broke open, tombs fell apart. Because God was so heartbroken over the idea of his son being separated from him for you. It was such a spectacle that even the Roman guards said that they looked up and said, surely this must be the son of God. But something else significant happened at that moment as well. The curtain inside the temple of the Lord was torn in two from top to bottom. God's Holy Spirit could now no longer just reside in a temple behind a wall because it was so heavenly and so powerful. Now, because of Jesus' sacrifice, the Holy Spirit was now available for us. Salvation was now possible. I brought up earlier before I started talking about this. If this was your story, if this was you having to experience the full weight and consequences of your sin, at what point would the passion have been too much? At what point would you have cried out to God saying, God, just take me. I can't take this anymore. When your friends abandoned you? When you're being falsely accused? When you were mocked and spit on? When you're whipped and lashed? When the crown of thorns was placed on your head? Jesus could have stopped it at any moment. But he endured every single part of the suffering to save you and to save me. And he did this for a mite.
This pain, this suffering that Jesus was willing to endure, it wasn't for nothing. It was for us to be able to take a good look at ourselves take ownership of our responsibility to see that he stood, he took the full weight, the tidal wave of punishment, the separation from God in your place. But the question for us becomes, well, what does God want us to do? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you were healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Peter's trying to remind us of something that God was saying for hundreds of years, was going to happen. Jesus was willing to face all this death, all this suffering. Yes, because he loves you, and you're worth it. Consider that for a moment. Jesus endured every single moment of that suffering because he looked down at you and said, I love you, and you're worth it. But not for emotion. Not so we could come to church. Not so we could have a, an emotional reaction, an emotional response. He did it. So we would have the opportunity to die to ourselves and live for something. In the NIV, the words that it uses there is it says, he died so that, we, so that we would die to ourselves and might live for righteousness. Jesus went through all of this on a gamble. Knowing that you and I would choose our own sin, would buy the lies of Satan over and over and over again in the hopes for the opportunity for you and me to choose a life that was different. He will never make anybody choose his life. But Peter is, is clearly saying here, sure, he did this to leave us an example so that we will follow in his steps. To pay our cost and allow us the chance of a new life. Peter urges us here that we must follow in his steps. The cross gives us the hope that we can die to sin and live a new life. If you're visiting with us, you're here for the first time, like Carlos said, or this is your 500th time. You've been a disciple for years and years. This still matters. 
You are just as worthy of the cross today as you ever were. And Peter's urging in here as he says, look, it's time to return to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. To make a decision that you're going to turn away from what you've been. But there's a part of this that we have to own. To be willing to stare down the ugly truth of reality. The reality that Pilate refused to take ownership of. This is my fault. This is my responsibility that Jesus had to die. Not for guilt, not for shame, not not so you could walk out of here feeling heavy hearted. But to say, if Jesus was willing to do this for me, if this is really my fault, and I know that I'm responsible for this, then I need to turn back, die to myself, and live for something else. We're going to get to the new life next week. But before you can be grateful for new life, before you can take ownership of new life, you have to take ownership of the death. I know this isn't a touchy-feely good lesson. I know you're not going to walk out of here feeling all clouds and rainbows with God. But maybe that's from God. There are times when I believe it is God's will that we feel the weight and the responsibility of our sin because that's what killed His Son. We're going to take our communion here together. And I'm going to say a word of prayer for that, but I want, to, I want to encourage us to really engage with ourselves in God. And there's going to be a video playing uh, for Lead Me to the Cross. And there's going to be some scenes from the Passion of the Christ on there. Whatever is going to help you to engage, this is about remembering what Jesus was willing to go through for us. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, I want to thank you God, I want to thank you for looking past what what we deserve to be willing to send Jesus to die to give us a chance for new life. God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for how easily I forget this. I'm sorry that I want to ignore this sometimes, that I don't, want, I don't want to feel the weight. I don't want to own the suffering that I've caused your son. God, it's easier to come here and play church. Father, I know that even in those moments as we struggle, as we wrestle with this, Father, that Jesus looked down from his cross and asked for you to forgive us anyways. But I pray that this moment will not go to waste, God. Not, not because it's emotional and not because it's Easter time. Not because of any one dramatic or emotional thing like that, God. I pray that this, that this is a part of who we are. Because the new life that we've been given, the cost of it was death. And I pray, Father, that as we take the communion, that you help us. Help us to be humble before you as we examine ourselves, as we examine what Jesus went through, 
Not for everybody else in this room and not for everybody else on this earth, but for us. We love you and to your son. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh